I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. In this episode of Systemic, we hear from food activist Clancy Harrison and discuss issues of food insecurity and the food dignity movement. Clancy shares stories from her 14 years of experience, from a nutritionist to fighting hunger, and explains the food dignity movement's approach of centering their work around others' lived experiences. We learn about the different levels of food security and insecurity, and the internal and external stigmas associated with food assistance. Clancy also discusses some of the systemic roots of inequities in the food system and offers insight from those she's spoken and worked with on dismantling biases to better empower communities. As a food equity advocate, registered dietitian, and TEDx speaker, Clancy Harrison challenges the way food insecurity is approached and discussed. She's the founder of the Food Dignity Movement, a strategic program for leaders who want to shift how they approach nutrition outreach by making healthy food access a priority with dignity. Currently, Clancy is an advisory board member for the Pennsylvania American Academy of Pediatrics Food Insecurity Epic Program, ambassador of the National Dairy Council, and a past president of the Owl Beach Westside Food Pantry, where she served over 4 million meals during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can tune in weekly with Clancy at the Food Dignity Podcast. This episode of Systemic is sponsored by the Black Equity Coalition. The Black Equity Coalition is a group of experts from diverse fields working tirelessly to address institutional racism and structural impediments that continue to plague Black, undervalued, and underserved communities. Initially focused on responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, the coalition is committed to working towards racial and health equity beyond the pandemic's eventual end by engaging in disparities in the five social determinants of health for the underserved, our necessary means of health and survival. Through the collective efforts of physicians, researchers, epidemiologists, public health and healthcare practitioners, social scientists, community funders, and government officials, the Black Equity Coalition is dedicated to ensuring that vulnerable populations have access to health, well-being, and economic stability. For more information, visit blackequitypgh.org. Welcome, everyone, yet again to another episode of Systemic. I am your host, Dan Kimbrough. Uh, and today I have a very special guest, someone who I actually know, uh, with me, Clancy Harris of the Food Dignity Movement. Clancy, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yes, and our kids go to school exactly. together. Exactly. So, so when I, we met professionally and our kids go to school together. Which is so funny yes. to me sometimes to think about how big and small the world can be all at once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so today I want to talk about um, food dignity and food insecurity slash food security. Um, it's... Especially in a post-COVID world, we realize that our access to food can almost immediately be cut off if we don't have privilege and means to sort of always have access. And so can you sort of big picture what is food dignity and food insecurity and why should we be worrying about these things? Okay, that's like a loaded question because we could talk about it for days, right? (laughs) So first of all, let's just, I want to clarify that food dignity, we are a movement Mm -hmm. Uh, we have some founding pillars, but because we're a movement, we do believe that food dignity means something different to everyone. Mm-hmm. And so we cannot have a, def- a full definition okay. and we try to include as many voices. But if I was going to sum it up from my perspective, it is, and it's been a perspective that has been growing and changing over the last 14 years of my direct service on the ground fighting hunger. And so when I think about where it started, it was from my food elitist mindset where I wanted to make sure I was serving steak versus ground beef. And I do want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with ground beef. 
I wanted to serve fresh produce over canned. There's nothing wrong with canned produce. It, it Canned produce is actually very delicious. Now, if we fast forward to where we are today in 2023, I would have to say it's, it's really built from the lessons that I've learned from setting aside my own ego, my own privilege, and centering the, first of all, it's that piece, respecting all life experiences, including my own and where I've come from. Even the life experiences of people that I might 100% disagree with, I need to respect the fact that they have a different view and I need to learn about them. The other thing is was is understanding the barriers that people face every day with food access. And I'm not going to know those barrier, barriers unless I center the person that I'm working with. And I want to clarify working with versus helping. Mm -hmm. And so when I work with someone and we center them as in their own agencies of their own resources and what success looks like for them, then we can truly understand the solutions that live in their hearts and their minds and their souls versus me assuming that I know their solution. So food dignity is very comprehensive. And one person I interviewed yesterday on our podcast, the Food Dignity Podcast, I always ask people, what does it mean to them? And she responded back and she's like, there's dignity in hunger. Ooh. There's dignity in needing food. And that just gave me the chills. I never had anyone sum it up so perfectly. And I think that was your first question. What was your second question? Um, the, the, food and Yeah, like what does that mean? Before we get into that, I want to talk, yeah. I want to go, you said that it's different for everyone. And I love that approach because um, from a DEI lens, when I go into communities, everyone wants this magic bullet of how do we fix things? How do we change it? And one of the things that I always have to tell people is, well, your community is different than my community different than the next mm -hmm. community. And so the work has to be figuring out what you need and not that assumption. And how did you come to that realization? You said you've been doing this for over 14 years. How did you make that switch? Because I want to steal it and teach it to everyone else because that's, <laughs> that's that linchpin is mm. how do we change that viewpoint? Yeah, you're like, I'm literally, you can't see me, but I'm tearing up. Um, a lot of humility and grace with myself, a lot of self-compassion with myself and having the courage. And I want to say the bravery to be able to say I'm wrong mm -hmm. and where am I wrong so I can be right. That's amazing. And is that an attack on you or your, on your ego? Or did you, was that what you had to work on to get through that? Because that is a hard thing is to be able to say I'm wrong. Like I don't have all the answers, but I still want to help. So I had, yeah. It's a daily practice. I mean, even today I was sitting with an intern. We were serving food at a local place, New Roots Recovery. They work with substance abuse disorder. Mm -hmm. And I, at one point, I did not want our local lettuce to go to um, this one project because I needed, to, we have to figure out where we're stretching our stuff, ourself then, mm -hmm. right? We only have so many resources. But there was also a personal reason. And I looked at my intern. I said, I am actually being resentful and I'm actually coming from a place of ego. And when we do that, at the end of the day, the people that get hurt the most are the people that we serve. Oh, wow. And I'm making this decision because I disagree with one thing. Mm -hmm. And this has nothing to do with New Roots. They're yeah. awesome. That was not where I was holding my resentment whatsoever. And I want that to be clear. But I, and I looked at my student and I said, this is, this is our lesson we have to do every day. We have to see where we're coming, where we're using our power. Are we using our power to empower people or disempower people? Mm -hmm. And if we're having those conversations in our head, which we do all the time, everyone judges, everyone has misconceptions, everyone projects their life experience on what they think it should be onto other people, no matter who you are or where you live. We all naturally do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we can take a step back and recognize when we're actually doing it and pause for a moment and say, okay, what's my lesson and where am I wrong? And how I have a choice here. I can either empower or disempower, and I'm going to choose to empower. And that is it's just a lot of self-work. And I honestly think it's self-help because at the end of the day, I don't go home with resentment, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm attacking it when it's happening. And so I will, I had to, okay. I, when I first started volunteering at the food pantry, I went home and I thought to myself, I, first of all, I don't know what a food, I know what a food pantry is, but I never, never was in place. I was never 
step foot gotcha. in a food pantry. Mm-hmm. So I I had my I was creating a false narrative of what I thought it would be in my head. And I thought, and so this is where people might start to get aggravated with me, but you have to respect my life experience and the fact that I'm admitting this. So when I went home and I'm having self-dialogues, my self-dialogue was people are using welfare. People should be educated. They might be lazy. They're taking advantage of the system. And even worse, I took it a step further and I thought I would see people actively using drugs and alcohol. But you have to also understand my life experience, my mother's family, drug and alcohol addiction, big time. And so I just assumed I would see my aunts, my uncles, not them physically, but people that's that's just what I thought I would see. And then when that good voice started speaking, I was like, Clancy, it's not your place to judge. You have no idea. Go in and do the work. And I started volunteering. And when I looked around, I was like, oh, um, I don't see anyone drunk. I don't see anyone on drugs. Mm-hmm. I see people running from domestic violence. I see elderly who have slipped through the crack. I see veterans. So where did that come from? And if I feel this way, how many other people feel this way? Mm-hmm. And so it was in those moments, I'm grateful that I was able to have that self-reflection. And so then it became my mission to honor that in me and talk about it. And But then how do we use it to teach? But how do we use it to break down those misconceptions? Because when I first started this, I thought, oh, I'm a dietitian and I'm going to end childhood hunger. <laughs> okay, right? <laughs> Right. But that's your ego. Yeah. A hundred percent. I get it. That's your ego. And then when I got in and I became, wow, I'm not even making a dent in this and I feel unsuccessful and I feel because I put that big lofty goal. And then I said to myself, you know what, what if your goal is to just get rid of stigma, just get, get rid of stigma through your lessons and what you, and it actually created a TEDx. Mm -hmm. It created Mm -hmm. a speaking platform and it has spun into the food dignity movement. So I hope I answered your question, but it's a battle every day yeah. with your ego. No, you did 100% answer it. And I like the way you put that cap on there is that in world, you know, in childhood hunger, let's work on the stigma, right? Because that's also part of that ego is let's start lofty, but narrow it down to something more tangible. Um, and it's that perfect launching point into this idea of what, Define the stigma, right? So we're talking about food insecurity, and so we're going to put off answering that question again, I guess. Um, the stigma, right? Uh, and reading through some mm-hmm. of the materials that you sent over, you talk, and even in the TEDx, you specifically talk about the internalized stigma, that if you're in need, you may not even go seek help, not for any other reason than you don't want to be associated with all the stereotypes that you talked about you walked into a food pantry with. Oh, yeah. And so can you talk about I the mean- stigmas a little bit? Yeah. Well, there's a ton of stigma. One I just learned, which I thought was a really interesting one, and I could have put two and two together, but I didn't because it's not my life experience. We're working with a gentleman out of Philadelphia who's going to be doing his capstone. He's a gay white male. And he looked at me. We were on Zoom. We weren't. And he said, Clancy, I would never go to a food pantry. And I was, why wouldn't you go to a food pantry? He's like, why would I go to a church? I've been shunned from a church because I'm gay. Why would I ever? And I never would have considered brick and mortar being a barrier or creating that stigma. So talk about internalized stigma. Wow. But that's hundred percent spot on. If the place that's designed to help you is also the place that has repeatedly told you your existence is a sin, you're never going to go get help there. No. Wow. So the more, right? So we can keep going down, right? Once you start going down where the stigma lives, it comes down to that personal experience of that person. Mm -hmm. And it also comes down to, are we projected? Think about colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. Universities will say, we're going to put the food pantry in the basement, or we're going to put it across campus. And when I work with universities, I say to them, you are the one creating the stigma and the shame right now. Mm -hmm. Before you even start this food pantry, first of all, it's not a call it a food pantry and second of all let's not say we're fighting hunger can we just say we have food and we care about you we already know college students are high risk of food insecurity but when we say no we're fighting hunger you're hungry and we need to help you and by the way you can walk 20 minutes across campus to get your bag and it's going to be in the basement or sometimes it's even the vp office of student affairs right so now we're creating we are projecting shame by hiding Mm -hmm. it And one time, just a a quick little story, I worked with a local university, we won't say who they are, but I was working with a student and she started picking up 
produce from our local food bank. And instead of the university did not want it mm. to be in public with me. So when we made it a student project, the student was like, let's put it in the place where everyone eats and the place where at the time when everyone's there. Right. And it's just a produce stand. And all we did was like free yeah. produce, whoever wants it. We had people lining up. We we were like literally. I, I think of Oprah. You get a banana. You get a bit like, and we're like throwing <laughs> stuff over because people couldn't even get. It was so popular. Oh, wow! But we didn't talk about hunger. We didn't say you're hungry mm-hmm. and we're gonna give you free food. We just said Here's food. we rescued this food because that's really what a food bank does for the most part. Mm-hmm. So we could talk about it from a sustainability. So there's there's just a lot. That's. That's amazing that you were able to do, to have a pantry, quote unquote, but never mention hunger and still reach your audience because you removed where the stigma was, was, oh, we don't want to seem like our students are hungry. Even though we know at a national level, that entire population is starving and eating very non-nutritious food because they think it's part of what they need to do. Um, so why, you've talked a little bit about this, so the stigma, that's what we've talked about the internalized stigma, but this external stigma that we as a society have placed on getting help. Where does this come from? Or have you found or in discussion? Because it's a, it's this weird dichotomy of, well, if you're hungry, go get help. But as soon as you do, we're going to judge you for it. Okay. Can I'm going to be candid. Please do. Okay. I like, after being 13 years in a church, I probably 12 years in that church. We don't need to mention where it was. But when I was running that food pantry, I would constantly say, I think most of our volunteers are here for their golden ticket to heaven. Mm. Right? Wow, yeah. And I I like to say what's where where are we coming from? Are we coming from a charity mindset or I use obviously food dignity, mm. but you can say food empowerment, mm. you can say food equity, food justice, but are we serving from a charitable, which would be you get what you get, you don't get upset. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, here's pork. Right. Here's pork, it's free, you should be happy. Oh, I'm sorry, this is expired. Yes, we received a donation from 1987, a can of nacho cheese from 1987 in 2020 that is our record expiration date okay would you be honored to eat that would you be honored when we're getting rotten end-of-life produce from our food bank because Mm -hmm. they food banks are meant to buy large quantities of food at a very cheap rate so locally and i would say within like a four state footprint they buy from the port of philadelphia it's called the markman atlantic co-op end-of-life produce so in Let's just say August, I might be getting moldy corn from Mexico. That corn's probably been in three, four, five warehouses. By the time we get it, it's moldy in August when we should be getting fresh corn from our local farmer, right? Right. Would you be grateful to eat that? No. 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 So what are we doing it for? Are we doing it to say we gave food or are we doing it to actually nourish and strengthen our community? So we have to, and this is, I've never shared this story and I'm going to share it on yours because this was racism that I saw locally at the church. When you would get food orders. So if, if you're, say you were coming into our food pantry to get food mm-hmm. based off of your family size, that would be how many people. So you might have three, four people in your family. Mm-hmm. Then you would get so many bags of food for a four day supply of food. So if you're one person, you got less than a family of four. So we had this family that I think they said they had three or four kids, but our volunteers never saw the children. And so our volunteers started thinking they're lying. Oh, they're lying about the kids so they can get food now let me so so, right right but i'm not even it's gonna get a lot worse so when you felt when you have to you have to fill out a form that includes your address your name Mm -hmm. and uh self-declaration if you're using any food banking food that comes from the government so if if you're using basically any feeding america food bank you have to fill out this declaration of need so now we have a volunteer who has access to their address Two volunteers got in their car and they sat outside the house of this family. Didn't tell me that they were doing it. I'm the president of this food pantry, probably because they knew I would flip a lid, Right. right? And so then they see kids did not get off the bus. So instead of coming to me, they went directly to our local food bank. The food bank person said, we need to collect social security cards of all the children in the family. Now, okay. I have two kids. I couldn't tell you. I don't even think my husband might keep them somewhere, 
but so then couldn't even the, find my, my volunteers. Couldn't find my kids' social security card. <laughs> no. So my 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 the volunteers that did this came up to me and they're like, "Look, this is what our food bank is saying. You cannot feed them until we get." And I was like, "No, no. What you did was illegal. Mm. You never should have used that form to go to their house. That was stalking." And let's take a step back and let's think about this. Maybe the kids had after-curricular activities. Maybe the kids go to their grandparents after school. Maybe they got picked up because they had haircuts or doctor's appointments. Or any of the 9,000 reasons they didn't come directly home. Maybe they saw stalkers sitting outside their house and was afraid to get off the bus. Yeah. Yeah. So many So reasons. when you have that happening, if think about that. Yeah. Wow. And if, if people are willing to do that... And, and I've seen other things. What Talk about shame and stigma. We don't even believe that you have kids. And the idea that these are also the people, though, who are there to help you. Like, it wasn't a random person on the street. It was someone who was at this location to help you and give you it food. It was a Christian. Wow. It was a Christian. Wow. And the fact that, who cares? They're hungry and your job is to give out food. <laughs> Not to judge. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, then. So... I don't even, you completely threw me for a loop with that one. That's, that's a little crazy. Um, so then this idea of insecurity and, and, or food security, what is this large issue that we're talking about? First of all, I don't even like giving stats because I don't know how they can have accurate stats. I mean, if you think of someone right now, think of yourself, whoever's listening, if you go to the grocery, I just saw today, I'm sick of paying double for groceries. It's getting old. Someone posted. Mm -hmm. That is food insecurity. So we have four levels. We have four levels of food security. The first one, everyone in the household has enough for an active and healthy lifestyle. That's called food security. Okay. Then we have marginal food security. Marginal food security, according to the government, is still someone who is food secure. They do not change their eating habits. But what happens is they start to have a lot of food stress. Mm -hmm. They don't know if they're going to run out at the end of the month. They don't, but they're, they don't. But that stress level increases their risk of 10 chronic diseases. So then the last two definitions, we have low food security and then very low food security. I think most people in America associate very low food security with hunger, chronic hunger. You might be skipping a meal. You might go three days without a meal. You probably have to go to a food pantry. You'll utilize SNAP, which is otherwise known as food stamps or WIC, women, infant, and children. So you're using food assistance programs. You might have to steal for your food or dumpster dive. Mm -hmm. That would be what we would say chronic hunger, gotcha. chronic food insecurity. Then we have something called low food security. And that is, I to get people to really understand this, this is where people will start to dilute their milk. So all the kids okay. will have milk with their cereal. Mom or caregiver or dad might dilute formula. So the child, and we just had a big formula mm -hmm. crisis mm -hmm. in the United States, right? We might see people eating pancake, prepared pancake mix day in and day out because it's easy you and it's affordable. Right. Same with instant noodles. And it could be culturally different depending on, I'm using examples of what I've yep. seen. I'm not saying that is a true to every culture. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, is you start to eat the same thing over and over again. That might be, uh, well, it's definitely cheaper and it has a less quality. So you're getting enough food to fill your belly, but you're not getting the nutrients. So this is where you'll start hearing nutrient insecurity, mm -hmm. nutrition insecurity. Mm -hmm. So I always say to help people truly understand this, um, I, when I went to Penn State, I ate instant ramen noodles. I love ramen noodles. They're in my house right now. I'm, and I don't get paid by them. And, and, <laughs> and I'm, not I'm not putting them down. But ramen noodles was my go-to. That was not a rite of passage. That was food insecurity. Right. But how often do we say, oh, just you got to get through college. That's just what you go through. Just, you know, suck it up, buttercup. That's what you do. No, that is food insecurity. So if you're listening and you were that person in college, you were food insecure. And you need, And I think the more we can get people to recognize points in their life where they were food insecure, mm -hmm. I think we might start changing the stigma and the narrative around food access because it's not just them over there. And I think when I was going through learning about myself and whole, all this judgment things with um, food insecurity... I had to say to myself, why do people 
judge and I would go to sociology, theology, like all these professors, because I was an adjunct professor at three different schools. And I would call them up and be like, please help me with this. And they're like, there's actually research that shows that people will judge because we want to put them over there. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to recognize that we are a step away of being food insecure and that it's better to understand that they made a bad decision. They are the people that didn't go to school. They're the ones that do drugs. They, 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 them. We always hear them or those people, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I my belief is that most of us at one point have it has experienced either about a food insecurity and in research shows or we have been extremely close, whether a birth of a child, whether it was a car accident, a car breaking down, more bills, COVID. Think about how many people lost their jobs. Maybe it was a medical diagnosis, um, a divorce. All these things could play a role in what causes someone to go through a life change. And when people go through a life change and you become stressed around, stressed around your food, and you start making different food choices, that is food insecurity. And so I don't think we can truly understand the depths of it, because if you just think about inflation with gas, if you think about inflation with grocery prices and COVID, it's all around. All you have to do is just go to the grocery store and listen. Yeah. Listen to the pe how people talk. Mm -hmm. No, and that's spot on. And that's in that the I don't want to pay double for groceries. Again. I'm tired of paying double for groceries or something that I hear a lot or like even whenever eggs go on sale right now, the mad rush because everyone wants eggs and needs eggs. And now that they're affordable again, there's this mad rush. Um, I want to touch on two things that you said there. One is that the idea that it's always them. Um, and that you, that's what you learn from a lot of the philosophy professors that we want to, we always want to say that it's them over there that have these issues. And in this idea of thinking about being food insecure, for me, the ramen noodles thing was the linchpin. That was what made me really understand because you're right. Everyone talks about it's this rite of passage that you suffer through college. You got to get used to eating ramen noodles and that's all you can afford. But that made it realize it's not them, it's me, it's us, it's all of us, because that was part of that rite of passage. Can you talk about that notion of getting people to switch that mentality and that work that you're doing when you're speaking and you're talking to places that, no, 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 we've all actually been here. You just have been trained to think of it as a rite of passage or part of growing up, when in reality, we needed to fix it then as well and before it got to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think being on this podcast and just having this conversation, I can, I'm a storyteller. So of course I'm going to answer that through a story. <laughs> uh, before COVID as a keynote speaker, it was really hard for me to sell hunger as motivational, inspirational, transformational. Mm. And that's what you have to be to be on a keynote stage. Everyone, all my event planners will say, no, that's a breakout because unless you work in food access, with SNAP or WIC or food pantry or food banking, people are just going to get on their phones. They're not going to listen to you. And it became my mission to say, well, actually hunger could be adapted or connected to any topic whatsoever because hunger is a foundation, foundational piece. And I remember this one time, I, it took me two years to pitch this one stage. And I finally got the okay. And it was 5,000 people. The new president came in of this association and the next day, literally at five o'clock, I had an email, you need to be on a call at 8 a.m. tomorrow. And it was her entire board and everyone that worked with her. And I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on the chopping block again because this is a keynote mm -hmm. and all the marketing and media went out that I was doing the keynote and we get on the call and it's sure enough. She started saying, I don't understand how this relates to diabetes. I don't understand how food insecurity, right? I see your, your <laughs> eyes are, your eyes like went big, right? Um, and we need to say, I need to honor that. So, because people can't see that reaction and exactly, right? This is a president of a very large association questioning. I don't understand the connection of hunger and diabetes. And we can do a whole nother podcast mm -hmm. on that. And I, I, 20 minutes after talking to her and explaining she came to the realization and she said, you know what? When I was in college, I had heavy groceries because all I could afford was canned food. And now that I know that that was food insecurity, I guess anyone could be food insecure if I could. And if that's the case, yeah. if that's the case, then I do see a relationship with diabetes and food insecurity. I ended up doing the keynote. I I kept it, but it those they're just very hard. Con it, there is just constant 
conversations. Yeah. And it, 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 there's not a, it's just, you have to get the right terminology. And that's why I always define the definitions of food insecure. And I always use that linchpin, like mm-hmm. you said, because I think if people can see a moment in their life, then it starts to click. Otherwise, if I visualize, and I want to ask your listeners before you heard that definition, what, how did you visualize hunger right. when, you know, I'm almost 50. So I'm a product of like the seventies and eighties. I grew up watching commercials or PSAs. I think they mm-hmm. were called save the starving yep. children of Africa. Yep. You would see sunken eyes, skinny limbs, bellies that were bloated, mud mm-hmm. bugs all over the face, eating dirt off the ground. Like that was my visualization of hunger besides generational poverty inner city poverty, which by the way, are all misconceptions too. That's a lot of judgment. We need to really have different conversations about that. But that was my association with hunger. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny that you say that because that's the, so growing up in my household, it was, if you didn't want to finish something because it didn't taste good, it wasn't fresh, but pick the reason you didn't want to finish the meal. Well, there are starving kids in Africa who would eat that. Yeah. Like using that exact notion of this is what real hunger looks like to shame people into eating or finishing or consuming something that they don't mm-hmm. want or I'm actually full and don't want to continue eating. Well, I've cooked it and we're not going to waste it. Starving kids right. in Africa want that food. That's just crazy. <laughs> but so think about so that's why I'm at, like I would love to hear from your listeners if they can leave comments mm-hmm. or write in. But yeah, what what did they visualize hunger? And now after listening to this, what is their new visualization of hunger? And I think if we could start changing that narrative and having better conversations of what it actually looks like, the fact that there's not, yes, there are definitely populations who have been marginalized. There's institutional racism. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons why there's groups of populations that have a higher risk of food insecurity. But at the end of the day, there's not one particular look mm-hmm. you can have. And I want to share this other story. I lived in a place. No one's going to maybe your listeners will or will not know this, but it was called it's called Dallas, Pennsylvania. So if we think about um, what that is, it's, you know, upper middle class, I would say yeah. the perfect little like. Yeah, there's a lake nearby, plenty of highway access, but it's a very affluent uh, a lot of professors in our area live in that area. There's a lot of land and acreage and space. And so you're well off. One of the top school mm-hmm. systems mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. So I'm living there and there was a family in my neighborhood. I don't want to get too specific of where they were. And their kids would come over and stay at my house until like nine o'clock at night in the summer. And of course, I would start to get resentful with the parents, like, aren't they taking care of them? Like, what, what is going on? And then I, of course, that resentment would come out and I would take it off on them. And I'd be like, we're getting ready to eat. Can you please go home? Like, go home. (laughs) And they came back 10 minutes later. And I said to them, I said, did you eat food? Did you go home and eat? And they said, yes. And I was like, what did you have? And they couldn't tell me what they ate. Mm. And it was in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, here, This is what I do. This is what I teach. This is what I fight. It's right in my nose, right under me. And I'm resenting them. I'm taking it out on them. And I said to my kids, I I was like, well, you guys, y'all can eat. I'm like, take any food. And the next thing you know, my kids were coming down like sneaking. Mm -hmm. I saw them. I don't know if they were sneaking, but they were taking bags of clementines. They were taking the bags of like the cheese sticks. Right. And And in that moment, I was like, I've been given the privilege to help these kids, but I was resenting them. And there was some guilt. So if there's any parents and summer's here and you have kids sticking around, you probably are the safe place for those kiddos and you have the opportunity to help them. And so don't, if you're mad at the parents, be mad at the parents, but don't take, don't make the mistake I did. Yeah, don't take it on the kids. And it's interesting because I think about my summers growing up as well. And it was it was never an official thing, but it was almost a rotation between friends as to whose parent was making lunch. And it would be one of those like my remember my mother being happy when she wasn't the house that was up that day because, you know, she didn't have to worry about feeding, you know, us, but also all the kids in the neighborhood. But now looking back and thinking it was also a break in because we grew up poor, like it was a break that day. She didn't have to make lunch because we were eating at someone else's house. But then we returned the favor a couple of days later when that mom didn't have to make lunch. And now I'm looking looking back and thinking it was probably food insecurity 
And without mentioning it, everyone figured out a way to work around it. So the kids still got a chance mm-hmm. to eat and everyone was Resourceful. sitting here. That's just, that's amazing to think about in hindsight. So um, you talk about privilege uh, in a lot of your presentations and, and the work you've done and, and this idea of having the privilege to be able to give back and do things, meaning that there are groups who can't. And so I want to sort of switch and, and sort of get into the beef of the systemic issues behind how did we get here and also... Let's talk about specifically when we look at race in the Hispanic population, the, the the black population and BIPOC population, food insecurity is almost double what it is for the nation as a whole. How is this something that we've overlooked or I don't know, maybe not even using the wrong right words, but how do we get to the point where where two thirds of our population has it twice as bad as the actual population? I think you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> First of all, I think we need to acknowledge that I'm a white woman of privilege mm-hmm. that never really experienced food insecurity except for uh, what I experienced at Penn State. So that is where I'm coming from. We started the Food Dignity Podcast where we have been interviewing people who have lived through systemic racism and food racism. And I have learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I feel comfortable even trying to repeat their stories or the lessons I've learned. I can tell you, um, I have witnessed it. Mm -hmm. I have seen it. I have seen, (sighs) I think that there's, I know now that there's money and hunger and poverty. Oh, okay. Talk about that a little. I, there's a lot of funding. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of funding. There's a lot of funding that goes into big monopolies, big hunger. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of... Mm. If I were to explain what I've learned now from... And I'm just going to call... If it's okay with you, mm-hmm. I'm just going to call it out on your podcast. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about Feeding America. Mm-hmm. I think that they do have a place and they do take a heavy lift. So, but I want to talk about... Let's just talk about our state. So if we have Feeding Pennsylvania, that's a... That is the overarching place in Pennsylvania. It's called Feeding Pennsylvania. And then you have the Feeding Pennsylvania Food Bank. So they're the Feeding America Food Banks. And then under them, if you think of about it, it's a big pyramid, at the base are all your member agencies. Okay. All your member agencies are the direct service. So that would be your food pantries. Mm-hmm. Food pantries and food banks are completely two different things. Most of the money that is raised goes into the food banking system member agencies. So that would be your food pantries, your soup kitchens, or maybe a nonprofit that receives food and does onsite serving. They rarely get the funding unless they're doing their own fundraisers. Um, They usually don't get the grants or the corporate money because it goes to bigger hunger. Mm -hmm. Um, At the end of the day, the food banks get to decide what organization gets what food. Okay. Okay. So (laughs) if we start breaking that down. Gotcha. And there's one organization that is, let's just say white, Mm -hmm. popular, has connections. They get all the good food. Guess who gets all the good food? Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then if we work with other organizations that might be working with people who are homeless or in recovery, mm-hmm. or even domestic violence. Gotcha. They get the worst of the food. And so I, I have the what I have the privilege because I've become an I've become an advocate for um, member agencies and using their voice to speak up mm-hmm. and say what they need, what are their challenges. Because I need I think we need to flip this mm-hmm. on its head because at the end of the day. The member agencies are the people that have to say, we ran out of food today. Right. They're the people that have to turn people away. They're the people that are finding all the resources to make it work when there's food supply chain issues, right? And so we need the voices of the people doing direct service. More importantly, we need the voices of the veteran that we're serving, the person that's recovering from addiction, Mm -hmm. the mom running from domestic violence. We need their voices on what success looks like for them and where the solutions lie. And- their voices are never on the table. And so I've become an advocate where I help other member agencies or food pantries say, you don't have to get food from the same food bank. We can actually get food from food banks in Harrisburg. 
We can get food from local farmers. We can work with rescue. You can source multiple locations to get your food to make make sure that there is a variety and you can actually put meals together. And so because I'm like this person that does that, I also get to see the order forms. Mm -hmm. And that's how I know one place gets Brillo pads, Brillo pads, Mm -hmm. baby food, coffee, you know, and another place is like, oh, you have chicken. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You, you have watermelon. Like you, you have like. Yeah. So even in those who are attempting to help, we still have racist stereotypes that are slipping through. And who gets what food? And whether we call it institutional racism, whether we call it favoritism, whether we call it, well, we know that person, or maybe we want to do, we want to look really good with Mm -hmm. this organization because it helps us get more funding. I don't know the reasonings, but but this is what I'm, this is what's happening. And this is what I'm seeing. And at the end of the day, it's not an equitable food supply system. And so that's one of the things that we're working on. Um, You know, I did, I would love to, I can, what I can do is send you the interviews that we've done mm-hmm. on the podcast and maybe you could put them in the show notes. Yeah. That way people can hear Felicia's mm-hmm. story. You can hear um, Maria Maria um, from NYU. She does a diversity equity. Inc- and you can hear their stories, Angela Odom Young, mm-hmm. because I don't, think I'm in a pl- I don't <laughs> think I'm in a place to tell their stories, but I can tell you what I've seen and what I'm trying to fight now. So then let's make that flip. And Angela Odenjung was actually on two episodes ago. Oh, she was? I love her. Yes, she actually was on a couple episodes ago um, in this series looking at food insecurities and all these different things. And so we actually had, we did have her on. Um, And so then let's sort of flip that switch then and talk about sort of what is it that you've seen then from that outsider perspective then? So instead of you sharing sort of your story, what are you seeing of, and you meet, and it could be, you know, locally or wherever you're work, you know, you're, you're working and doing these things of the people who are, who are coming in as well. Cause you talk about, it's not who you think that needs mm-hmm. help. And I, and I'm, and I'm always uh, drawn back to, I used to, when I taught, I had a class called intercultural communications where students had this, as uh, put themselves in a situation where they normally wouldn't be or that they are the only one who is like them there so that they could learn and observe other groups. And I had students who would go to an AA meeting and they would come back and say that exact same thing. It's not who I thought was going to be there. Like it wasn't the traditional falling over drunk. It was the doctor or lawyer or the person who works at the grocery store. Like this idea that this is a disease that affects almost anyone, not they've done something wrong and that's that stereotypical person. But when we talk about race and not that it's a stereotype, but like, can you talk about who is coming in though when we're looking at race and what you observed about these inequities? Because again, like numbers wise, we know that there's inequities. So what have you observed then? All right. So I'm going to tell you another story. I was on WIC, uh, Women, Infant, and Children. It was a national panel and I forget her name. But she worked for the bread bread.org or something like that, but she does DEI. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh boy, I <laughs> I better I can we have a talk? Can 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 we have like a 20 minute zoom and can we go over my slides? Because I don't want to be on a panel with you and we're not congruent. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong, I need to know I'm wrong. And I'll own my I'll own it. Yeah. And so we met and it it was over and she gave me over an hour and before we started she's like okay do you want me to call it your whiteness i'm like Let, let's do it call me out i'm scared i'm scared as hell but let's do it and when we went so we went going through the powerpoint we were also able to there's a lot of stories and backstories and she kind of understood and she goes your biggest issue that i see is that you fight classism mm-hmm. you don't fight food racism oh wow and food equity and i was like what do you mean And she's like, well, she's like, your church works with people that looks like you, prays like you. Mm -hmm. Are you you opening it to any other cultures, any other religions? I was like, well, it is mostly Christian. And yeah, you are right. When we when we partnered with a pediatrician's office, it was easier for me to partner with them because they go to school. Our kids go to school together. So it was an easy ask. They are familiar to me. We have a connection. And yeah, you're right. I did not open it up. Yeah. The door's open. But was it really open? Right. 
And that's, I think we the, say it's open. That's a real big one though. That idea that, yeah, the door is open, but have you actually invited me in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was eye opening. Another thing that happened when Maria Ramirez, who was on our, she does DEI mm-hmm. for NYU. So we have something called the food dignity Institute, which is peer reviewed and professors can use it to, to train or teach food insecurity or sensitivity awareness around food access. And we had our outline. We had everything. We had it all. I should, I, honestly, I should, it's around here somewhere. I should have, I should pull it. But we gave it to her. Can you just take a DEI lens to this mm-hmm. and tell us where we're wrong so we could be right? And it came back a couple of weeks later and it was all red. I, I mean, there was so much red and my ego <laughs> blew up, right? Like it was, it was, and I couldn't get past the first question. Her first question was, Clancy, where do you cause the barriers to food access? Where do you cause and the barriers? Where do I cause? And I was so mad. Like I was sitting at this desk. I can't believe she would ask that. Doesn't she know? I serve. I fight. We're we're during we're COVID. We're at the two million mil mark. How does she? What? Ah, 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 right. And I would so mad. I would like take it. I threw it to the side. I'm like, I'm not. I'm not gonna read this. How dare her? Like ego. That's all ego. Yeah. I'm just being completely honest. But thank goodness that good voice will eventually rise past mm-hmm. that. And I would go look at it get mad again, put it away, mm-hmm. probably two weeks of digesting it. And I had to take a step back and I was like, okay, remember when you sat on that panel, you fight classism, right? Like you're fighting classism, not racism. And and when are when is your food pantry open? And when do you project your food elitism and your white privilege of what food should look like onto other people? Every time I do that, I create a barrier. Every time I make an assumption about someone else's barrier or access, I'm creating a barrier, right? right? And so I had to go, like, when we think about... <laughs> but it was the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. It was the hardest thing. But I, but, but I think that those, especially that are working in food or any of these areas that are looking at equity and access, I think that that practice of where... Am I creating the barrier? That's going to be, that's, everyone should do that though. Because you're right. You're projecting what you think poverty looks like, hunger looks like, need looks like, like whatever avenue you're working in, you're always projecting what you think the the, the person receiving that care should look like based on your lived experience, which is a small spot slice of the entire world. And so you've got to f- remove all of those ego things to be able to really help folks because anyone can need help. Dan, let's just ask your audience to like take out their phone and Google, what does a healthy meal look like? Oh God, which country? And look at the images <laughs> and look at the images and what comes up and really look at that. Is it an affordable, is it sustainable? And all for for most people, I wouldn't. I mean, it, and what comes up is typically the Mediterranean diet. And then let's take a step back. The Mediterranean diet, has, whoever made that diet up, has really done a great job from a marketing standpoint. Because if I say the words Mediterranean diet, what comes to your mind immediately? Uh, olives, chicken, rice, healthy foods, um, olive oil, olive oil, vinegars. Like, yeah, right. How big is the Mediterranean region? Not that big. Actually, no. No, it's humongous. It's humongous. What are you talking about? Sorry, it's humongous. And it's got to be more. It's humongous. It has to be more than that. Like, it can't be those few items. Exactly. Okay, I see what you're saying from the marketing aspect. Yeah. Think about all the cultures that are left out. Yeah. And then, and then you have, and then you, okay, now let's do this one. I was from the South, right? Mm -hmm. I was raised on beans, greens, and rice. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yep. For the most part. And I love it. I That's like my favorite meal. If you told me to eat brown rice, I would probably be like, get the heck out of here. But how often do people in my profession who are predominantly white, mm-hmm. predominantly of privilege, will say, you have to eat your brown rice. Right. Yeah. You have to be around. But if you look at actually brown rice and compare it to white rice, actually the white rice is fortified with a lot more vitamins and there's only one gram less of fiber. Now, if I'm putting my white rice with pinto beans and greens. Mm-hmm. 
Come on, right? right? Like, you can't tell me that's not healthy. So think of it from a cultural, how many times are we projecting people to change their food and making people think that their food isn't healthy? You know, and it's amazing that you say that because I had it written down that I forgot to, you know, to go back to this. Um, it's, I lived in Seattle, well, Bellingham, Washington, which is just north of Seattle. Um, but we, the TV station was at, we were sponsored a, it's called the Walk for Rice for the Asian population there because all of the food banks and food pantries were missing rice. Because usually when you think about what gets donated to a food pantry in the U.S., it's that small box of rice aroni. This is Seattle, where the Asian population is one of the largest. And for many of those who are one or two generations removed from being in Japan or China or pick a country, rice is a staple in their everyday mm -hmm. diet. Mm -hmm. But financially, this is who the population in a lot of these food banks in Seattle were. And so this walk was nothing more than a fundraiser to buy humongous 50-pound bags of rice to distribute to the food bank so that when this specific population comes in, you have food that's nutritional for their bodies based on mm -hmm. their culture. Instead of just saying, here's what's in the box, take it and go away. To back to earlier when you were like, are you being charitable? Where it's be grateful for whatever you got. Or here's food you actually need. And want. Right. And want. Even bigger than act food that you're actually going to want and use, it doesn't end up going to waste in the long run. Yeah. So think about all that projection, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we think about the micro racism mm -hmm. that's involved in that, right? I think that totally counts because I'm projecting what I think you should eat based off of. Right. Not knowing culturally. My, my saviorism. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and not thinking culturally around the fact that your diet, regardless of who you are, is a part of your internal system that's keeping you healthy. And that mm -hmm. we need to feed you in a way that will continue to do that, not in a way that's going to shock your system. But how do we get people to realize that while being charitable is nice, we need to be charitable with this notion of actually doing good, not just saying we helped somebody. Right. Yeah. That, and after, that's and for difference. you... And, and for you, and what you're doing, that's going to be the big push, right? Not I want to help. It's I want to help in a way that actually helps. Well, so I, I, I want to share another story. Mm -hmm. I was in Chicago and uh, for a big event for Dr. Stover from Texas A&M. He's been given like $30 million to uh, rethink how agriculture plays into human health. So mm -hmm. when we were there, we had a national research. So there were probably like six different tables. And in each table, you had someone from the USDA. You had someone from the Texas A&M Institute. You had a researcher and you had an ag producer, and then you'd have someone like me. I don't know where I fit in, but I fit in somehow. So I'm mm -hmm. sitting at the table, and it, he, we were all given four questions that we had to brainstorm and come up with answers. And I forget what the question was, but I remember the researcher said at the table, he goes, you know what? The problem is, is that poor people don't want to eat healthy. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're going to – I went <laughs> – Hands on the table slammed them down oh wow and i was like wait aren't you a researcher so causation yeah don't you have some saying about that like and uh just because someone doesn't eat what you perceive as healthy mm -hmm. does not mean that they don't want to eat healthy food right and you're a researcher it, okay, if that's the mentality, think about that. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's... And first... Oh, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I can go on, so... <laughs> well, because I was going to say, and it's... Uh, I'm going to walk real lightly here so I don't get myself in trouble. Um, I'm on a board for a group here who offers uh, um, some sort of medical help for students in need. And we ran into an issue where we realized that a lot of parents weren't accepting this. And one of our board members came down to the notion, well, it's because people in need, they, they, clearly they don't care about their, ch their children being able to mm. do this one thing because they're not accepting our help. And it took a meeting to sit and go, no, 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 no. It's not that they don't want the, the end product. Who are you? Like, why should mm. they trust this faceless organization that's offering medical help? 
to their child when we're talking about a BIPOC population and a largely white medical group, well, group that wants to help with this medical mm. thing. Do you not understand the history of racism in this country? Like, there's a humongous reason why we're going to be leery about taking this help from you because we don't know who you are, the purpose, why you're helping, what do you get in the, all of these questions that go into this. But their response was, well, no, they just don't want to help their kids. No, they do want to help their kids. They don't trust you. And just because you're helping doesn't mean you've earned someone's trust. That just means you want to help. <laughs> That's nothing to do with me. That's all on you. But they couldn't get over this notion that how dare you not receive my help that I'm offering you, which is that savior complex. How dare you yep. not let me help you? Yep. And that's why it's really important for us. I say it over and over again. We are not helping people. We are not mm. helping people. We are working with people and we need to flip that and we need to change it. Because if we, that goes back to that difference between charitable mindset or equity. Mm -hmm. And it's centering the person in their own agency, what success looks like for them based off the choices that they have, maybe the trauma response that they have from past things like you just said and mm -hmm. how and you have to earn the trust and if you don't have the trust then you need to say you know what maybe i'm not the right person let's find the right person to help you or to work with you yeah but but there's too much money to say that <laughs> i know there's well, too much money to ego. be the group that walks away yeah it's ego that's crazy and it comes well, down back to that mm -hmm. thing you have a choice to mm -hmm. either empower or disempower and i hope people choose to empower yeah i really do too so um is there anything that we've forgotten in talking about food insecurity or what food dignity is, is trying to do? Is there anything that we've forgotten to go over in your mind or any walkaways that if nothing, if they only hear this bit, what should they know about food insecurity? Mm, that's a, that's a hard one because I could go on and on and on <laughs> and I wasn't prepared to, to say the one thing. Um, I honestly, from the bottom of my heart believe that if we're going to fight any injustice, mm -hmm. whatever it is, whether it's hunger, we have to internally look within our own biases lie and try our hardest to step outside of that and, and peel back our own layers and try to understand people from their perspective. And I'm going to keep saying this over. You have two choices with your words and your actions. You can either empower or disempower someone. And we need to choose empowerment. And when we talk about empowerment, we can empower ourselves to be humble and say, yeah, I don't know everything and I'm not supposed to know everything. And that's okay. There shouldn't be guilt around that. Mm -hmm. We should not feel guilty. We could be proud and say, I don't know everything. Believe me, it's so much easier. And then the second thing is, is like, how do we empower? We empower ourselves there, but then we empower the people that we work with. But what about our community partners? Mm -hmm. Do we say we're collaborating or can we do empowered collaboration? And that's where we actually share true resources. And we say, I have something, I have a resource that you might need and I'm going to give that to you. And I'm not going to fear funding wars yeah. or you're going to get acknowledgement or you're going to get all the credit. You're going to get all the money. You're going to get all the accolades, all, whatever it is, you're going to get the award. We need to take, if we can't, if we cannot have empowered collaboration, whether it's individual or with other organizations, we will never fight injustice. And that's all that that's the one thing I think people need to know. That's awesome. I've never heard that phrase, but I like the idea of empowered collaboration, um, which may be the answer to my next question is how do we solve this? In the future, looking forward, what do you think is, if there is a day where food insecurity is solved, how do we get there? I believe that the solution lives and lies in the people who experience every single day. Mm -hmm. They know what they need, but we just make the assumption we think we know what they need. And the moment that we empower someone as best as we can and we work with them and we center what success looks like for them and we truly understand what they need, then I think we can help, truly help. Yeah. I don't know if I answered that, but. No, you did. That's, that's amazing. Thank you for that. Um, well, Clancy, thank you again for your time today. If people wanted to get a hold of you or the Food Dignity Movement, how best should they go about reaching out? 
Sure. So we obviously have uh, the uh, fooddignitymovement.org. I'm clancyharrison.com. Uh, Clancy at clancyharrison.com. You can always email me. If you if you heard anything that you want to know more, you want to be on my podcast, <laughs> I would love if you wanted to talk about your food experience, uh, whether about barriers being placed on you through institutional racism, I would love to interview you because... That's what we do over at our podcast. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Through dignity. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again very much, Lance. This has been an amazing time. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.